He's asking the question, is there any evidence that you're born again? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? As we stand, let's pray. Father, we do pray that through your written word tonight, you would speak to each one of us and bring your order to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take a seat. And uh, on behalf of all of us, I want to say thank you to Miles, to his singers, to his minstrels in the gallery. And I want to apologize to the choir for having my back to them. This building was not designed for good manners on the part of the preacher, I'm afraid. The story is told um, of a monastery where the monks lived under a vow of silence and uh, once a year they would gather and one of them was allowed to address the others. And uh, one year it was Brother Cedric's turn and he got up and he said, Brother Gerald never does his floor sweeping duties properly and sat down. And another year passed. Um, and the next year it happened to be Brother Gerald's turn and he got up and he said, my sweeping is a whole lot better than Brother Cedric's washing up. Another year of silence passed, and this time it was Brother Cuthbert's turn, and to everyone's surprise, he turned up with his suitcase um, in civvies, and he said, I've had enough of all this infighting, I'm leaving. <laughs> well, if you're here for this service as a guest, let me explain that we've just begun a sermon series in the book of James. Like most other New Testament books, it was originally a letter to churches with problems. One of the big problems was infighting, Christians getting angry with one another. And where sinful people like us are trying to live together as church, that is a problem that's never far below the surface. For example, just recently in our church, there's been much discussion about the organ just beside me. Um, he is our oldest member. He's recently died, which is why we've had to rely on other instruments tonight. Now, even when the organ is working, there is enormous danger of infighting over the choice of music. You must have heard the old gag, what's the difference between an organist and a terrorist? Answer, you can negotiate with a terrorist. Um, but now the organ is not working, many have expressed a view as to whether it's justified to pour a lot of money into restoring this thing behind me. And in conversations, various people have said to me, I feel really strongly about this, which is a Christian euphemism for, I could get really angry about this if you push me. It's like our other euphemism for anger, isn't it? I'm frustrated. He, she, that frustrates me. Let's be honest, where sinful people like us are trying to live together as a church, Anger, let's call it what it is, is never far below the surface, and nor is it in marriage or in family life or in the workplace, or in fact anywhere where there is at least one other human being to wind you up. So what does God have to say about this probably number one threat to our relationships with one another? Let's turn um, back to the book of James, to page 1011, page 1011, 
That will get you to James chapter 1. Um, the three points I want to make on this bit of the Bible are on the back of the service sheet, if you'd like to follow them there. Page 1011. James chapter 1. And um, let me remind you of the opening words in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials. And the rest of the letter tells us that one big trial that many of the original readers faced was financial hardship. Now that, in and of itself, is enough to make you more prone to anger. Um, but to make matters worse, the letter shows that the more well-off Christians were doing little or nothing to help the poorer ones. So the poorer ones were not just angry with their situation, but angry with their fellow Christians. So now look back at verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James is saying God is allowing your trials to test your faith and to produce the kind of character he wants in you, which runs totally counter to my natural reaction to trials. My natural reaction is to want to change the circumstances and the people who are trying me. Whereas God's agenda is to change me through them. Well, last week we got to verse 18, so we rejoin at verse 19. And the first thing God says to us here is, realize that anger doesn't change what needs to be changed. Anger doesn't change what needs to be changed. Look down to verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me ask, what are we hoping to achieve when we get angry? Getting our own way? Getting our own back? Avoiding facing up to our own sinfulness by shifting the blame onto someone else's? All of which are totally ego-centered. Whereas verse 20 says, God is always out to produce righteousness. That is, right behavior that flows from God having his rightful place in our lives. When I'm no longer thinking that I'm the center of the universe. So what does that look like? Well, verse 19, be quick to hear. That is, hear the other person's point of view, the other person's story. So this week, for example, I heard a cry from Naomi, our one-year-old in the garden, and I raced out and I said to one of her sisters, what did you do? Not what happened or what did you do? What did you do? In other words, I'm already playing God, presuming that I knew exactly what, what went on, despite the fact that I wasn't there, presuming to start dishing out justice, even though I haven't even established that a wrong has been committed. Talking to a friend at a wedding recently, I said to him, doesn't marriage show you how selfish you are? And quick as a flash, he said, and doesn't having children show you how angry you are? So verse 19 is not just a word for church life, but for family life. They're two kinds of family life, aren't they? Be quick to hear and then slow to speak. Being slow to speak at all is always wise because it makes you more likely to listen. But later in chapter 4, James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. And that's what he has especially in mind here. He's saying, don't criticize people 
destructively. Don't leap in to judge and condemn, either to their face or the coward's way to a third party. So verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, which does not mean a Christian should never feel anger. Jesus felt anger and showed it. But what he had on his side, which we don't, is sinlessness. So that his anger was always righteous anger. That is to say, he always felt angry for the right reason and he always reacted rightly in his anger, which cannot be said of us. So slow to anger means slow to react. It's not saying don't feel anger because that's just not possible in a fallen world where all the time we are constantly being sinned against and wronged and where feeling anger is the natural and right response to being wrong. The trouble is it's always mixed with our sinfulness so that in reacting, I'm highly likely to add more sin to a situation of sin. Now, anyone, I think, Christian or not, would agree with the wisdom of verse 19. What is distinctively Christian here is verse 20 onwards. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, which, as I said, is right behavior that flows from having God in his rightful place. And the Bible says only giving God his rightful God place will change us and give us the will to overcome our anger and all the other aspects of our sinfulness. So realize that anger doesn't change what needs to be changed. Second thing is this. Let God change you through his word. Look on to verse 21. Let God change you through his word. Verse 21, therefore, in other words, since reacting in anger is not going to solve your problems in relationships, in church or anywhere else, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. He's still talking primarily about anger there. Vivid imagery of how it can soil church fellowship and spread like some rampant weed so he says put away mismanaged anger and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls now as i said feeling angry is the natural response to being wronged in that sense there is something thoroughly right about it it's like the needle registering injustice But as I've said, in us, as opposed to God, it is always mixed with sinfulness, with the egocentricness, which is always so sure that I'm right, that my idea is better than yours, uh, that my needs should take priority over yours, um, that your sin is a bigger factor in the situation than my sin. All that kind of egocentricness is in us, and we need to realize how utterly destructive to relationships it is, and how we need to be progressively saved from it, which is what the end of verse 21 is about. James says, we need to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, by the word, he just means the gospel, the message about Jesus as Savior and Lord, which you find in the Bible. And in last week's passage, James told us that If you have come already into relationship with Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that happened through the word, the gospel. Just look back, if you would, to verse 18, where James says, of his own will, God brought us forth, or you can translate that, gave us birth by the word of truth. 
Now, James was almost certainly thinking there of where the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3 talks about being born again. You may remember it if you have a bit of Bible background. This guy, Nicodemus, comes to speak to Jesus. Nicodemus is one of the bishops of the day, so he teaches God's law. He tries to keep God's law. And um, Jesus says to him, it won't change you. Knowing how you ought to behave doesn't enable you to do it. You need to be born again, said Jesus. New babies uh, appear in this church at an amazing rate, and so every other Sunday or so I find at the back of church or somewhere, I'm having the conversation that goes roughly like this, you know, isn't she lovely, what's her name? To which the frosty replies, Jack um, is his name. And so you try to rescue the situation by speculating as to whose nose he's got or whatever it is. But imagine you said, gosh, he's got flappy elephant ears. And he's got a hopeless nose. And his hair's a complete mess. He, He could really do with being born again. How insulting is that? Jesus is not insulting us, but it is insulting because he says that to every one of us. Whoever you are, however decent you think you are, however moral you try to be, you need to be born again, says Jesus, because something was so deeply wrong with you the first time you were born, not physically, spiritually. Because the Bible says we were all born with this natural inclination away from God, so that consciously or subconsciously we we just push God out of the picture and say, no, I want to live life my own way. The Bible word for that is sin. We've used it in the liturgy tonight. And it's almost impossible to overstate how offensive it is to God. And the judgment that it deserves is that we are left in our sin in this life and left out of heaven in the next. That's why Jesus said, you need to be born again. The stakes are that high. He was saying you need a totally new God-given start in life. He was saying you need to be forgiven and he died on the cross in order to pay for our forgiveness and then he rose again and he's back in heaven and from there he can come into your life to change you where you can't change yourself. You need to be forgiven and changed and that's what happens in being born again. Now if that is new to you or if you are just not sure where you stand with God tonight, can I encourage you to pick up one of these booklets called Why Jesus. It's about the heart of the gospel and um, you'll find them on the welcome desk at the back or, or the racks at the doors. So verse 18 says, that's how you come into relationship with Jesus in the first place, through the word, the gospel, which you find in the Bible. And in verse 21, he says, that is how you will grow in relationship with Jesus and be progressively changed. So end of verse 21 again, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the picture is of God's word as a seed. It's planted in you, along with the desire to trust and obey it that the Holy Spirit uh, gives. And that seed needs to be received every day of a Christian's life. And notice he says, with meekness. And that's the attitude which only comes through being born again. Meekness is is the attitude that says, you know, I am not God and the universe is not here to serve me. God is God and I'm here to serve 
him. Meekness is the attitude that comes to the Bible and says the Bible is right, I am wrong. I need to be corrected by the Bible. The Bible does not need to be corrected by me. That's meekness. And only by constant receiving of God's word will our sinfulness be progressively overcome. So if you're a Christian member of this church, the very best thing you can do for JPC is to read your Bible. Have your quiet time. It's the very best thing you can do for the quality of this fellowship. But, there's a but, look on to verse 22. But, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And it is so easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? It's so easy to, um, to think that doing, religi- doing religious things, like having my quiet time or, or coming here to church like this, means that I am spiritually well. When in fact it is perfectly possible to be doing religious things and having no personal dealings with God at all. That was true of uh, William Haslam, the clergyman in Cornwall in the 19th century who was converted in the middle of one of his own sermons. Um, Like many people before and since, he'd got into ordained ministry without actually uh, jumping through the most basic hoop of being born again. And one biographer writes this. One Sunday in 1851, following a period of deep conviction of sin, Haslam ascended into the pulpit with the intention of telling his congregation that he would not preach to them again until he was saved and asking them to pray for his conversion. However, he began to say a few words on the text, what think think ye of Christ? And the Holy Spirit breathed new life into him there and then. And the effect was so obvious and marked that one of the congregations stood up and shouted, the parsons converted. And rejoicing broke out in all corners of the church. And dealing with the Bible without really dealing with God is a great danger for a Bible church like ours. To think that having a quiet time or a lively discussion in a small group or having a a set of sermon notes to wave at the end means that I've had personal dealings with God. That remains to be seen after the quiet time, after the Bible study, after Sunday. Look on to verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. So the picture changes from God's word as a seed in here to God's word as a mirror out there. Acting like a mirror isn't the only purpose of the Bible, but it is one purpose of it. And we can all relate to the picture, can't we? Because um, we don't just look in the mirror to check that we're still visible or that our heads are still on, do we? We don't just look in the mirror for looking's sake, which is what my one-year-old still does. She hasn't caught up with the adult notion that you look in the mirror to see what needs combing or tying or rearranging. We look to the mirror to show us what's wrong and needs changing. And that's one purpose of the Bible for those who've already come to Christ. So we need to discipline ourselves whenever we hear or read the Bible to ask the question, so what? 
And when I have my quiet time, my personal Bible reading time, I often write that down on a scrap of paper and force myself to write an answer. So what are you going to do in response to this part of God's word, Ian? Helps me clarify how I need to act or believe differently. I'll often look back at it next day or a few days on and say to myself, Ian, have you actually done that? Have you been gentler with the children or whatever it was? That's why I also do take notes uh, on sermons and encourage others to. Otherwise, how are you going to remember what you've heard and check that you're acting on it? You may have a better way of doing that, like reading it again or listening to it again on, on the internet, but the point is you need a way. And this is why I also memorize verses so that God's word comes with me into the day, even after I've shut the Bible. So thanks to preparing this, I've re-memorized verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James chapter 1, verse 20. That's been going around my head this week on our brief holiday when the children intermittently have been willful and annoying. So James says, realize that anger doesn't change what needs to be changed. Let God change you through his word. But because it's so easy to deceive ourselves, he ends this week's passage with some tests of spiritual genuineness. So thirdly, he says, test your spiritual state by God's criteria. Test your spiritual state by God's criteria. Look on to verse 26 to end. Keep fanning. Um, I can see you're hanging on in there in the heat. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James gives three criteria, control of the tongue, care for the needy, and radical distinctiveness from the world. He chose those because they were areas of failure for the churches he was originally writing to. As we go on in this series, we'll see that he unpacks all three at length. So they're tailored to the original readers, but they are also obviously timeless tests of spiritual genuineness, of born-againness. And that's why they're so searching. You see, if his three criteria had been, have your quiet time, come to church, and do some modest charitable giving, there's nothing searching about that, is there? The non-born again can do that. The born again who are only firing on two cylinders can do that. What's so searching about these is that they are evidence of that change of heart and desires that only Christ and his spirit can bring. So on control of the tongue, for example, the Lord Jesus himself said, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So only if we're born again in here will how we speak really change. Will we drop the sarcasm and the personal cutting humor and so on. Then on care for the needy, Psalm 68, which we read earlier, calls God the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And only if we're born again will we start to have a concern for people who, who just were not our responsibility. And we suddenly realize, actually, no, they are God, our Father's concern, and we've come to have something of his nature. And on radical distinctiveness from the world, only if we're born again do we find ourselves waking up to the fact that the values and messages that it's pumping at us are shot through with sin and demand nonconformity. 
Those are James' criteria. And they are searching because he's not asking, can you tick the boxes of the religious activities by which we like to define the Christian life? The quiet time, the coming to church, the etc., etc. He's asking the question, is there any evidence that you're born again? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Please ask me about my quiet time. Is there any evidence that you're born again? Because if not, what you need is not to be told to try harder to control your tongue or care for the needy or stand out from the world. What you need to be told is you need Jesus. You need to be forgiven. You need to be changed. You need Jesus. And again, if you're unsure about these things, please do pick up that booklet, Why Jesus? But for those of us who are Christian believers. Let me take you back to the monastery and Brother Cuthbert saying, I've had enough of all this infighting, I'm leaving. The thing is, all he can do is take his own sinfulness with him and join a new bunch of sinners and repeat the whole exercise over again. And that's why one of the lessons of James chapter one, which we've seen these last two weeks, is that we should not be looking to change the circumstances or the people around us we should be looking to God to change us. And so to close our service, we are going to ask him to do that in the words of Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling.